Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And as Chris said, it is time for Tuesday Home Time and thanks to Chris for his two hours of wonderful music. Today, reflections on Anzac Day with Nick McClellan, peace activist Kathy Kelly talking about her three months spent in a jail in Kentucky, Lee Tan, environmental activist, She'll be talking about the the Linus plant in Malaysia and um, Linus very quickly going broke. And part one of the history of Cuba, where things might be changing fairly quickly in that country in the next little while. I'll be speaking with Dr Ralph Newmark, who's the Director of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University. But let's first hear from Mr Kevin Healy, and I think he's got something just a little bit special this week. A week, Jane Lister, when what excitement. We will read one of the great breakthroughs in Troubadourosi literature, in Troubadourosi literary history. So hang in, because this is the product of one of the great socially conscious Troubadourosi minds. No, no, not me. I, I know that's your immediate thought, but someone else. Yes, there's two of us. But first, not so good news. Tonight's budget will have to address the serious problems facing the Troubadourosi economy, like workers imposing crippling impediments on their caring employers, preventing their caring employers from making life better for all of us, if only workers realised they would be so much better off if they weren't so well off. And thank goodness we have experts to analyse for us the delicate flower that is the economy, like following the interest rate cut, economic guru Joe Hackey, the workers, said he would be very, very angry if banks did not pass on the cut. I'll be very angry, very angry. He looked very determined, very determined. And if they still won't lower their rates by the appropriate amount, I'll be very angry, very angry. Uh, Yeah, sure, Joe, yeah, sure, but but what will you do about it? I'll be very angry, very angry. Mmm, strong response there. Let's hope for the bank's sake they do the right thing or they'll feel the sting of Joe's very angry, very angry. Well, they probably will do the right thing because when interest rates rise, they put them up by a couple of extra points retrospectively just to be safe. So being people of principle, we love principle as much principle as possible. No, no, don't interrupt. I know you're excited, but different spelling. But being people of principle, they would reduce interest rates as fast as possible, although understandably, they would have to impose a reducing interest rates fee. We can't expect them to bear the cost, which presumably involve a complicated expensive procedure like someone in some central point hitting a keyboard key. That very angry, very angry bit was one of the few comments we heard from Joe. It's an encouraging reflection that the kind, friendly, warm face of government is now the former Minister for Concentration Camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, and now Minister for Social Insecurity, scuttle them more, no less, son. What's that say about the rest of them? 
having abandoned for the ideological reason that they couldn't get making the most disadvantaged pensioners pay for the great corporates minimising their tax liabilities like paying none, quite legally of course, and now abandoning the rich who have been receiving a pension thanks to the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in the last even darker ages, we would expect the Socialist Party, the defender of those most disadvantaged, the enemy of the wealthy, to welcome the change. This proposal, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Bill Shorten Ambition looked very concerned, very sincere, shows this is a government that has no regard for the rich. This is a government prepared to attack the wealthy. Oh, so, so Bill, the Socialist Party supports the wealthy. We support anyone this government doesn't support. But, but what about principle? Policies based on principle. Principle? Principle? <laughs> Could you spell it? No, no, seriously, that is our principle. On our favourite media, Baron, commentator on this station Friday, said the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin had only devoted half its front page to sport. I disagree. The other half screamed, Cops Jihad Alert! 13,000 are given new terror warning. 30 Islamic State recruiters enlisting young true blue Aussies. Which to the whopping sin is sport, daily sport, Islamic terror on the playing field. So I'd argue it was 100%. Or conversely, sport is their politics of diversion. So it was 100% politics. Take your pick. Part of the sport politics is to scream, Jihad! Clearly the team captain in linking those who want to link, uh, you want to link to terrorism to terrorism. In sporting terms, terrorism is the coach, Jihad the captain. Today, 450 million Jihad fight back. Big lead. Budget boost for counter-terrorism. Kicker. Yesterday, we defy terror. Screaming. Thousands brave Mother's Day run. Suspect. Bomb plots. Ditches. Go to hell. Kickers. OK. No jihad yesterday, but not bad. It's a long time since that other sports football's been reduced to a P1 pointer bottom right on a Monday. But great literary figures like Lord Rupert bring us to today's highlight, the big one, the literary masterpiece, Poetry in Motion, Poetry Emotion. This is so beautiful, listener, perhaps the ultimate capture of the true Blawasi spirit. It's called Our Future. The globe is sadly groaning with debt, poverty and strife, and billions now are pleading to enjoy a better life. Their hope lies with resources buried deep within the earth and the enterprise and capital which give each project worth. Is our future threatened with massive debts run up by political hacks who dig themselves out by unleashing rampant tax? The end result is sending Australian investment, growth and jobs offshore. This type of direction is harmful to our core. Some envious, unthinking people have been conned to think prosperity is created by waving a magic wand. Through such unfortunate ignorance, too much abuse is hurled against miners, workers and related industries who strive to build the world, develop North Australia, embrace multiculturalism and welcome short-term foreign workers to our shores to benefit from the export of our minerals and ores. The world's poor need our resources. Do not leave them to their fate. Our nation needs special economic zones and wiser government before it is too late.
Isn't that just stunning? By, you may already know, that literary giant Gina, Gina Grindhart, expressing her concern for the world's poor for workers worldwide. Well, we know that because she wants to make them rich on a happy, happy $2 a day. There's no doubt she's headed straight to the World Literary Hall of Fame, a Nobel Literature Laureate bids. Okay, so the meter might have been a bit out in the odd line, like, like as many lines as there are. Now, to be honest, I think one rhyming couplet did gel, but doesn't such a thoughtful sentiment like, develop North Australia, embrace multiculturalism and welcome short-term foreign workers to our shores to benefit from the export of our minerals and ores? Shores, ores, wonderful rhyming. What a mind to think of that one. Like Peter Allen coming up with steel foam, I still call Troubler Wasi home. Shores, ores, amply compensate through the sediment, uh, sorry, sediment, to the atrocious lake of metre. Gina is so taken with her own skills, apparently, this literary gem is etched into some lump of our resources out the front of her Perth headquarters. So the passing world can both admire it and learn where our great country ought to be going. Well, it's the genus of this world who know where this great country ought to be going, as they tell us what infrastructure we need to get the old economy rolling along, for without their advice, governments may, unlikely but may, make the mistake of building infrastructure that benefits the community and does nothing to bolster the pockets of our great corporates who know what infrastructure we need, like transfer the public purse to us urban, telling the state socialist government it is happy to provide a new freeway in Western Melbourne for no greater reward for the sheer altruism of the government handing it the public purse. Leave the planning to us, the great corporates advise, and limit the government role to funding our investment. And how dare people suggest there was something amiss with the transfer the public purse lobbyists being ex-advisors to the Socialist Party ministers. Just an example of a company's great community responsibility, swallowing their ideological distaste and providing a little bit of work for raving socialists. Oh, and on the great responsible corporates, the parties that matter are reaching agreement on the renewable energy target. The target, they chorused, is to preserve the environment of the great fossil corporates to ensure the future of good, good lifting the world out of poverty coal. Before they agreed, the risk was we could end up with all this renewable energy. Look, we'd be happy to encourage, indeed utilise, 100% renewables if and when the world finds a way to hand the sun and the wind to the private sector, a little incentive for us to make the world a better place. And on that happy note, and getting back to our new literary giant, finally, I hope we all have as happy a week as the fun, fun, fun Mother's Day the happy, happy family would have had at Gina's. As long as the lawyers could keep them apart, enjoying their hard-inherited wealth, inherited wealth, even if they can't work out who owns which bits. Good afternoon. I really think he's a bit mean to our Gina, but there you go. You can hear more of him tomorrow morning, 9 till 10. City Limits, here on 3CR. This is one for Gina. Stop the war and the poor. Fair go for pensioners. Age pensioners, unemployed people, single parents with their children. Vicious funding cuts to welfare, health and education. 
Join Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition and fight the cuts and fight for our rights. 11am Wednesday the 20th of May, outside the State Library. Demand federal and state governments improve living standards, not attack them. Be outside the State Library of Victoria, 11am Wednesday the 20th of May, to stop the war on the poor. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition is a 3CR supporter. Environmental activist Lee Tan is back in Australia briefly and I spoke with her yesterday first about the Linus rare earth plant in Malaysia which was the subject of a two to three year campaign to prevent it from opening. This has happened and I asked Lee Tan what is the current situation. It is doing so bad that they have to close their head office in Sydney. And I think most of their offices, like including those in uh, Perth, do relocate to a cheaper place like Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. The plant is operational, but it is running at a great loss every month, every day. If not because of the Japanese support financially, to try and uh, break the Chinese stronghold in the rare earth oxide market, the plant would have, uh, you know, been closed down. So the Malaysians are suffering because of this geopolitical uh, strategic reason, which is quite unfortunate. And of course, you know, the waste are being produced, the pollution is um, happening, no one's monitoring it. Malaysia is both politically unwilling and also capacity-wise, they do not have that sort of skill to be able to monitor this kind of pollution. Uh, The legal system is problematic. So at the end of the day, there will be a toxic legacy, which is very unfortunate and sad. Is it known what it's like to be a worker in the plant? Well, there have been a few accidents and deaths. We kept hearing from people, you know, I think about over a year ago in December, and a young engineer, while he was trying to do a test by taking sample from one of the waste ponds, fell and uh, drowned because it was at in the thick of the monsoon season. And those retention ponds were built without you know, considering the the heavy rainfall and the amount of rain that will be deposited there. So the dams were extremely high in terms of water level and obviously he couldn't swim. And because he fell into the the toxic pond, the pond that contained the radioactive waste, I suspect no one dared to jump in to help him. It took many hours before his body was recovered. And then there was it, you know, there was no health and safety regulation in Malaysia. We heard that the family got paid off some 20,000 Malaysian, which is probably only about, what, 7,000 Australian for life of a young, you know, well-educated engineer. This is the situation there. There have been other reports of accidents, but it has always been hushed up. What we got are just, you know, word of mouth from people. Yeah, so... It wasn't a lot we can do except just to try and keep our, our monitoring of the situation as much as and as best as we can. But we were also very happy to see that the, the share price of Linus Corporation has um, fallen from its peak of about $2.50 to now hovering around $0.04 cent a share. And that's a drastic kind of uh, small win 
uh, in in terms of like you know the campaign and everything. You wonder how low they're likely to let that go, though, because if it's like everything else now, we have to contain China. So they might be willing to keep that loss for quite a while just to contain it. Yep, a lot of it depends on Japan. You know, they've got plenty for money and rare earth being a strategic matter becomes important, you know, for them to prop liners up, even though it's not profitable. I also heard that the quality of the rare earth oxide they're producing ain't good enough and it has to be sent to China for further refining, which is ridiculous. And yet, you know, the people of Malaysia, especially those living in the area, will have to content with dealing with a toxic legacy. It's another story of, you know, a developing country with corruption and poor, weak governance, and then the people and the environment suffer. I mean, the surrounding environment is actually quite ecologically significant. It's not even dealt with in uh, Linus' preliminary environmental impact assessment. And of course, the government hasn't got any management strategy either. So it's being left to rot and, and degrade slowly. I hope to be able to return to take some photos. And I will be continuing with the campaign by doing a, an academic research study. Uh, I'm actually now wrapping up a research proposal with the RMIT like, uh, University and also in conjunction at, uh, with Friends of the Earth. And in fact, this Wednesday, we're going to launch an environmental justice project in Australia. And my part of the project will be focusing on the environmental injustice of the Linus project in Malaysia. It's your hometown, isn't it? Yes, it is indeed. Fortunately, the plant is not situated right in the city, but it's bad enough. It is in the in the industrial area near the coast, some 20 kilometers away. But it is still bad in that it gave Kuantan, as, uh, my hometown, a very bad reputation. Uh, and that city initially is being seen as a peaceful, tranquil, large and also a beautiful city because of the, the nearest to the South China Sea, the beautiful white sandy beaches, the, you know, the remnants of the forest reserves and what have you. So this plant has actually tarnished the image of the town or the city quite a lot. Is there concern of discharge into the sea? Oh, absolutely. They're discharging their wastewater directly into the sea through a river that travels a peat mangrove forest. Those peat mangroves in tropical country are natural carbon sink and uh, they're biologically and ecologically unique. And yet, you know, there's no consideration to protect what's important from an ecological point of view. And of course, the South China Sea is a popular and has been for for centuries a fishing ground for local communities. So the estuary, which is, um, you know, a fairly rich mangrove area, where local fishermen would go to hunt for shellfish, uh, would catch fish around there. It's a fish spawning and uh, breeding ground. And all of that, you know, none of that impact has been assessed. There's not even a baseline study. So we will not know how it would change except for from uh, getting information from local fishermen, which I intend to get. 
You mentioned retention ponds a moment ago. What about when the monsoon comes, you know, a really big monsoon comes? How many retention ponds are there? And if they overflow, what do they flow into? I've seen three um, from aerial photographs. Yes, and not only that, the retention ponds run the risk of overflowing. And we've always tried to take aerial photographs after the, you know, like during the monsoon. But I have seen and taken photos of uh, run runoff directly that will discharge into the the Balok River, which is the, the river that goes through the mangrove, from its own waste retention ponds as well. So it just shows how little consideration Linus Corporation has for the environment because they, they do not care if their contaminated water will pollute the natural environment, will pollute the, the food, uh, the seafood, which local people depend on, both their, for their livelihood and also to attract tourists. Um, surrounding the area is also a, a very popular tourist destination. And that, in the long term, may be destroyed because of all this industrial pollution. What do the rest of the people in Malaysia know about this? Is it something that the government's tried to keep quiet? The, of course, the government had been uh, trying to spin its own uh, story by saying that it's very safe, it is state-of-the-art, it is um, high-tech and whatever you... But from our own um, scientific evaluation and also from our own uh, monitoring, we know that it is not, it is actually far from being scientifically state-of-the-art kind of high-tech company, but it is just a company that is only there to seek profit. The media in Malaysia is very much controlled by the government or the ruling elite. So as such, they will not report anything that's detrimental to the company because many of them probably have a stake in it uh, or they're trying to defend the government's decision to have it built in that location. So it is a problem, but social media in Malaysia is uh, gaining a lot of traction. There's a huge use of uh, social media like Facebook, Twitter and uh, blog and what have you. So we, uh, the, the more progressive elements of Malaysia are trying to use that to educate people. But by and large, Malaysians are aware of it and they know it is just another toxic project. But they also felt quite helpless in that sense because they've embarked on, you know, the nation's biggest campaign for a period of two or three years. They haven't, not everyone's given up. And in fact, the campaign is still kind of simmering. They're just waiting, you know, to work out what's the best strategy to adopt next. So in that sense, you know, this issue is very widely known in Malaysia and in some parts of, you know, in other countries as well. And that's environmental activist Lee Tan speaking about her recent time in her hometown of Kwantan in Malaysia. And that launch of the joint RMIT University Info Environmental Justice Project is tomorrow evening upstairs at FO, which is 322 Smith Street in Collingwood. Now, I'm not quite sure what time it is, so if you'd like to go and like to find out what time, you could either ring 9419 8700 or hop on the webpage foe.org.au. And on the program next week, Lee Tam will be back to speak about her work 
in the environmental field in East Timor. Today we're going to learn about H3O. Uh, Professor, if I'm not mistaken, H3O is the chemical compound hydronium. That's correct, Nelson, but it's also an exciting new formula. H3O is simply the addition of water and the subtraction of sugary drinks multiplied by 30 days. Ah, I see. And the results? You can kickstart weight loss, reduce health risks, reduce tooth decay, and save money. Take VicHealth's H3O Challenge and switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Find out more at h3ochallenge.com.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Spoken by Richard Moss and Tim Potter. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Kathy Kelly, long-time human rights activist in the US and co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, has recently been released from a prison in the US. When I spoke to Kathy, I asked her what was the heinous crime she committed, which resulted in her spending three months in a Kentucky jail. Well, I had gone to the military base called Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri in the center of the United States, where drones are being operated over Afghanistan and other places. And I and a co-defendant, Georgia Walker, carried a loaf of bread and a letter, and we said we'd like to talk to the commander of the base. We weren't allowed to do that, and when we didn't turn away from the base, we were arrested, and Georgia was sentenced to one year of probation, and I was sentenced to three months in uh, Lexington Federal Prison. It's because you're a repeat offender, is that right? I think when the judge saw my record of past, I don't think I acted criminally, quite honestly, but my record of past imprisonments, he decided that he should impose some kind of a, uh, a prison sentence. The prosecutor had said to him that Miss Kelly is in great need of rehabilitation. People in the courtroom smiled. And I was surprised that he gave me three months because in the past he gave six-month sentences out quite freely to one defendant, Brian Terrell, and a four-month sentence to another, Mark Kenny. So I felt that for some reason he gave me less time. Did you have a chance to speak? Not very effectively, I don't think. I think the, the judge in this case felt that his role was to protect weapons and protect soldiers at the base from people like me, who are believed we're assembling peaceably for redress of grievance and claiming our First Amendment right to do that. But there wasn't much opportunity to speak to the judge about why we believe that the drones themselves are instruments of international terror being waged against people in other parts of the world, and, and that this is a, uh, a violation, in fact, of not only international law, but even just basic standards of human decency. How do you prepare yourself for three months in jail? Well, I think that attitude makes a great deal of difference in entering into a prison. And I don't want to set myself apart from the other prisoners, but in many ways I didn't feel guilty. I didn't feel a stigma. 
And so I wasn't suffering in ways that mothers, for instance, separated from their children for very long sentences, you know, five and ten years, and feeling regret because they maybe had gotten involved in drug use or drug trade or money crimes. Uh, There there is a, a sense of guilt and remorse and shame, and I didn't feel that. But in terms of attitude, I think if one goes into a situation like an imprisonment, believing that there's much to learn and that there is a chance to better understand the plight of people who are part of this prison industrial complex as prisoners, you will gain understanding and will gain learning rather than to go in with a feeling of anger or a sense of being frightened or or, or expecting that you're going to lose a lot in this process. Can you describe the jail and those who were there with you? Well, I was in a minimum security prison, which is a kind of a satellite to a maximum security prison for men. And the maximum security prison is behind many, many layers of coiled barbed wire, and the men are only allowed to move five minutes out of the hour, and it's a, it's a much more stressful imprisoning place and because the men aren't allowed to go anywhere near the perimeter of the prison because they're maximum security prisoners the prison depends on the women prisoners to do all of the landscaping the shoveling snow and mowing lawns and raking leaves the women prisoners go out to the perimeter and go to the docks where trucks deliver supplies and they unload the supplies and if there's any repair of basic infrastructure like air conditioning or heating, women are involved in doing that. And so as a minimum security prison, we did have a, quite a lot of freedom of movement. But, of course, women couldn't leave the prison, and, and there is a, a kind of a heavy sadness that one can feel because women are separated from their children and their families, and there's also a fair amount of tedium people find ways to make the time go by crocheting various goods and reading books and some watch television. But I think there is a such a huge desire on the part of every person in the prison to have what I had, which was a very short sentence. And people are longing to go home, to be back with their families, especially amongst mothers, to be back with their children. The prison itself is quite old. It's a three-story building that had a basement, the visiting area, the library, the dish room, and the commissary were all located in the basement. And so most prisoners at one point would want to go down to the basement. There's also a small exercise gym room down there. But the elevator never worked. Maybe for one week in the beginning of my stay, the elevator was working, and then it broke down, and it was never repaired. So that made it very difficult for, for women who had a hard time negotiating these three flights of stairs. There were some women with heart troubles. There were some women who were quite overweight. There were some women in wheelchairs and some using walkers. And so it's very bad form, I think, for a federal prison to have women housed on three floors, many of whom need elevators, and the elevator doesn't work. There were gas leaks in the kitchen. The fire alarm system had gone completely haywire at 2 o'clock in the morning, 2.30 in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, the fire alarm would go off and, you know, nobody would dream of paying attention to it because it was obviously just broken. The halfway house system that would have allowed some prisoners to be released and to go and stay in a community housing 
so that they could look for a job or get ready to get readjusted to their home area is completely broken down. And even though women were supposed to be released, they would still be held in the prison because there wasn't any room for them in the halfway houses. So there are many ways in which the general prison overcrowding and the mass incarceration that's going on in the United States affected people's lives inside the prison. I read an article many years ago which the headline was Imprisoning of the Poor in the U.S. Is this prison an example of that? Yes, I think that many of the people who are imprisoned in the United States, prisons and jails, are people who have not been able to find a way to get an economic stake in their communities, sometimes because they weren't able to get a very good education, sometimes they don't have job skills, and sometimes the main kind of economy going on in their neighborhoods is revolving around the sale and the use of, of, of drugs, uh, marijuana, cocaine, sometimes heroin, uh, sometimes meth. And uh, I don't think this is a good thing, but I don't think that sentencing people to 10, 15 years in prison is going to create a solution for people who've gotten involved in drugs. And when people go back out into their communities, they have a very hard time finding a job. There are not very many companies that want to hire people who are former prisoners. Um, Often they can only get jobs at minimum wages, and sometimes even just trying to pay back the fines that they're supposed to pay uh, to the federal government for what um, they've been accused of doing, they simply can't make ends meet, and so will become involved again in the uh, drug trafficking. And so the recidivism rate and the return of people into the prisons is very, very high. It's, uh, I think, instructive that so many families are affected by parents that are in prison that the children begin to take it for granted that at some point in your life you go to prison because of the disproportionate representation of people of color within the prison system in the United States. Do children come and visit their mothers at the prison? The visiting room was often full, uh, but with 320 women there, of course, there were there are at least a couple hundred who don't see their children very often, especially women whose families live um, in, you know distances of maybe 200 miles or more away, and, and it's not very easy to get to the prison, and once people get there, it's not uh, very easy to find housing, and so many women that I knew hadn't seen their children in as long as a year. Are you saying that women are taken out of their communities into a different community to a prison? Oh, yes. There were women from many different surrounding states and from as far away as the East Coast, you know, along the Atlantic Ocean. There was a woman there from California. Women are placed inside of the prisons sometimes with the only access to their families being through phone calls. And it's 21 cents per minute to use the prison phone system. And so if a prisoner is earning 12 cents an hour, which is about the average wage that most prisoners earned, then you'd have to work two hours for one minute of a phone call. And so women weren't able to afford sometimes to call their loved ones. And if you really wanted to help make a difference in prisoners' lives, you'd really help them stay in touch with their families, help them stay in touch with their children, give them something that they really 
count on being part of, being restored to, but instead some women just get cut off from their families and their loved ones over the course of these long sentences. Do you believe it's a deliberate policy, an, an extra punishment? Well, I certainly don't think that the prison system as it exists in the United States has anything to do with rehabilitation or with helping people to become part of a better lifestyle upon release. Uh, I think it has everything to do with punishments, merciless punishments, the failure of the prison system to be able to make a difference in terms of the kinds of experiences that people have that have brought them into the prison in the first place is, is very, very obvious because of the recidivism rates. Well, what we have now is, in, in addition to the military-industrial complex, we've got the prison-industrial complex. Who benefits? Well, there are many people who benefit. There are corporations that use prison labor, major corporations that make contracts with the Bureau of Prisons, and the Bureau of Prisons says, sure, we'll deliver workers to you, and um, you'll only have to pay them 12 cents an hour. You'll never have to pay them um, any kind of insurance or vacation benefits or uh, health care benefits. So it's very, very lucrative for major companies to hire people that are in prison. And then also companies that are suppliers to the prisons are very eager to see the prisons maintained because they are able to make contracts with the Bureau of Prisons and supply things like well, food, for instance. And then there are are universities all across the United States, which every year graduate a new group of lawyers. Well, how are you going to keep all of those lawyers employed? Uh, And many of them become involved in the criminal justice system as prosecutors, for instance. And these prosecutors want to um, get promotions, and they like to be able to win as many cases as they possibly can. And so many of them have forced the prisoners into plea bargains by threatening them with much longer sentences if they don't accept a plea bargain. On the federal level, of all the cases that went to court, uh, only 3% uh, have gone to actual trials. 97% are resolved by this plea bargaining process. And for prisoners who, in 2012, and that's a year from which statistics were available, who were defendants in narcotics cases, the average length of sentence for those who took a plea bargain was five years, four months. The average length of sentence for those who said, no, I want to go to trial, was 16 years. So um, defenders, public defenders, often say to their, their client, well, actually, it probably is best if you accept this plea bargain, and then they negotiate that without the case ever going to trial at all. So we now have, you know, upwards of 2 million people imprisoned in the United States as a result of mass incarceration that has included mandatory sentencing laws that were passed that insisted that a judge has to give a certain number of years depending on what the person is convicted of. And um, these sentencing guidelines have contributed toward these tremendously long sentences is there any estimate of the, the total population of America, the percentage that are involved in this? You've said two or three million prisoners, but when you talk about all the ancillary things that go with it, it must be a big population of America that's involved in this complex. 
Well, in fact, as many as uh, 6 million people, uh, when you include the numbers of people that are either on probation or awaiting sentencing or awaiting trial, it does affect a, a, a vast number of people in the United States. And the construction of prisons also includes construction of these um, franchise prisons, which are used for many of the people who are uh, detainees because of immigration issues. And um, the largest is the um, Collections Corporation of America. But there are others that are contracting with the Bureau of Prisons and with the various state prisons to say, well, if your prisons are overcrowded, you can um, pay us and we'll run private prisons. How does it benefit local towns where these prisons are being built? Well, many local towns expect that they're going to get new job creation because the prison might bring more traffic through their town, maybe with people coming to visit the prison or maybe with people who are involved in maintaining the prison. But in fact, studies have been done and uh, have shown that building a prison in a particular town doesn't necessarily bring jobs, uh, the jobs that allow for any kind of advancement. People might get hired as prison guards, but if they have qualifications for a prison guard, they may never rise any further. And that, in fact, a lot of the higher jobs in the prison industrial complex are given to people who are outside of that particular town or sometimes outside of the county. It, it's kind of a, um, a racket these days for some of the rural southern areas of the United States to house thousands and thousands of prisoners, many of whom come from the more urban areas in the north of the United States, and these rural areas can claim as part of their residency all of the people who are in the prisons. This boosts up their census level. Of course, the prisoners aren't ever going to affect through voting how the uh, monies that come into the area are spent because the prisoners are disenfranchised, but it does allow some of the areas that get these prisons to get more federal funding because they appear to have a higher population. But it, they don't acknowledge that many of the residents in that population are residing in federal or state or county prisons. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on 3CR. Community Radio with Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with US human rights activist Kathy Kelly who recently was released after spending three months in a Kentucky jail. Can we put a face to maybe one of the prisoners that you got to know well during that three months? Could you tell her story? Well, I had a roommate. Her name is Gypsy. She's a 37-year-old woman, a mother of four. When she would have enough money saved up from her job as a a prison barber, she would apply that to making phone calls, and she wanted very much to stay in touch with her two youngest daughters by phone, and um, sometimes her very young daughter, three-year-old Mika, would say, Mommy, sing me another song, sing sing another verse of the song, and they would sing songs back and forth to each other, and then a 15-minute phone call would be ended, and it might be weeks before she'd have enough money to make another phone call. And this is a a young mother who is longing to influence how her children are being raised, longing to be restored, reunited with her children, that um, she has instead the tedium and the 
disappointment of of being locked up in in the prison. And I I personally was very appreciative of the chance to um, read the same books uh, with her. We would both um, you know read a novel. I, I, people were sending some very excellent novels in to me, and and then we'd both get a chance to discuss the novel. We talk about symbols and plot and theme and antagonists and protagonists of the novel. And I enjoyed that very very much myself, and certainly want to wish her well during her remaining time. But I, I also know that she's facing a significant health problem, and it's so so very very difficult to get adequate health. Measures. She's somebody who uh, has discovered two lumps in her breast, and she needs a mammogram. She needs, quite likely, a, bi- a biopsy. But it could be months before she'll get that X-ray, and it could be more months before getting a biopsy. And meanwhile, you know, she's simply got to deal with the fear that maybe she could be somebody who's facing cancer and can't get adequate care. How do you believe the people there? got to understand why you do what you do. How did you explain it to them? Well, one thing that perhaps was a bit helpful is that um, the book that I had written, Other Men's Have Dreams, in which I wrote about my experiences living in Baghdad in 2003 during the shock and awe war, and then also about having been a, a previous prisoner um, for having crossed the line of the military base and much earlier having planted corn on nuclear missile silos. That book came into the prison and um, eventually it began to circulate around and people were reading the book and saying, hey, that's you. <laughs> Over time, I began to talk more about what I had done and why. You know, this is a, a time when you could actually draw a very sad and tragic parallel between the usage of drones to engage in what we might call extrajudicial assassinations. The high-value targets are staked out and the drones will fire hellfire missiles or drop 500-pound bombs, uh, killing people who may or may not be the person who is designated as a high-value target. Well, here in the United States, it's been repeatedly the case that police people shoot black men, people of color, without any evidence that the person they're shooting is carrying a weapon, and sometimes, uh, in the case of Trayvon Martin, in the case of Eric Garner, they're killing in cold blood people who aren't charged with anything, aren't questioned, aren't given any due process whatsoever. They're just executed. And, and this is a little bit like the process of extrajudicial assassination in the drone warfare. I think we uh, have good reason to examine kind of cold-blooded killing and ask ourselves what affinities can and should be developed in the Black Lives Matters campaign and the campaign for prisoners in Guantanamo and in the uh, campaign to end drone warfare. Kathy, you've only been home a little over a week or about a week. Can I ask you just to talk for a couple of minutes about the the people who are at, at your welcome home party and the the two people who offered a, a short presentation at your homecoming? Oh, well, thank you for asking about that. When I was in prison and my friends were saying, well, do you want us to invite people over? Do you want to have a welcome home gathering? I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we could particularly hear from Maya Shenwa who is, uh, was one of our first volunteers at Voices and who has gone on to become the editor of a wonderful website called Truth Out. 
And um, she has written a book called Lockdown and Locked Out, in which, through her own personal experiences accompanying her sister, who had become addicted to heroin, she began to know a lot about the inside of the prison system and a lot about the prison industrial complex. And she's written a very thoughtful reflection. And so she made one presentation. And then we also heard from Rory Fanning, who had been uh, a Marine Ranger, I'm sorry, an Army Ranger in Afghanistan. In fact, he was in the same unit as a man named Pat Tillman, who was, it turns out, killed by friendly fire in Afghanistan, as they say. And he became a conscientious objector to the war and, and sought release from that unit. And when he got back to the United States, he walked across the United States talking about his experiences and, in Afghanistan and why he had become a conscientious objector. And so um, we heard from him as well. And it, was, it, it just happened that uh, a woman whom we've known for quite some time, who is a main organizer for the Black Lives Matter campaign, was in Chicago to go to a conference which would be addressed by Michelle Alexander, uh, uh, an African-American lawyer who has written a book called The New Jim Crow, showing how the prison industrial complex has sort of brought about again the kinds of disenfranchisement of young black men that were true of the, because of the Jim Crow laws. She happened to come over, and, and so she also spoke to our group. So it was a very warm and friendly exchange of ideas and visions, really. And you've been very, very busy in the last week, I understand, and even today, what happened today? Well, today began quite early for us. At 4.30 in the morning, we headed out to Beale Air Force Base, where a number of us had also been vigiling yesterday afternoon and evening. And this morning, as we held up panels uh, representing children who have been killed in Yemen and in Pakistan by uh, United States drone attacks, uh, we read out their names and kind of did one of these mic check deals where the name is announced and then people repeated the name and the age of each of these children. We did that standing in front of Beale Air Force Base, and then at uh, one point we we crossed the line together, 16 of us, and we were arrested and cited. And um, these kinds of actions are happening all across the United States and also in the United Kingdom. And so... Uh, we're not sure what the response of the authorities will be, but we have, uh, this is the second time that I've crossed the line at that particular Air Force base, and we feel that it's important to raise these issues, especially right now as, you know, the President of the United States did issue an apology for the drone killing of two people who'd been taken hostage by Al-Qaeda operatives, and when the United States killed these men with the drone, they had no idea that these men were in the house that they were attacking. And President Obama, in his apology, said that they had acted in the fog of war. Well, the phrase fog of war connotes the idea that there's ammunition flying and shooting happening and uh, a haze that you can't see through and you're not sure who's shooting at whom. But that's not at all what happened to these drone attacks. The target was static, and the selection of the target happened maybe using the global Hawk system that is being operated at the Beale Air Force Base where I was this morning. It's simply disingenuous to say that these drone attacks are happening amidst the fog of war. This is a means of 
using robotics and using very sophisticated technology to stake out a target which isn't necessarily even identifiable by name when they do what they've called in the past the signature strikes. And so this is an important time to ask people to slow down and think about the potential proliferation of drone warfare and the questions that come up when the United States engages in extrajudicial assassination of people whom it thinks might be a threat to people in the United States. Finally, Kathy, just to recap on all that you've been saying, there was some hope when Obama became president. Are you concerned the way now that the US is heading, particularly that there might be a Republican president in the, the next year or so? Well, I have great concern for where the United States is heading. I'm not confident that elected officials are likely to help us address the, the, the most pressing catastrophes that we're facing. And, and the number one catastrophe is the consequences of global warming and climate change and the corporate drive to take out even more fossil fuels, more oil, from underneath the Earth's surface, which can render the, the planet uninhabitable. And there seems to be very little effort on the part of corporate America to be rational in terms of any kind of concern for the future of the planet. And I don't really see much effort on the part of governing structures to rein in these very, very reckless and dangerous corporations. We're also facing, of course, the problems that have been caused by global warming and climate change and consequent shortages of water. I'm here in California in a state that has such a severe shortage of water right now that they've had to mandate ways in which people are accountable to conserve water. But, but there hasn't been the same kind of accountability demanded of the oil industry, which uh, uses up you know, 12 million gallons of drinkable water on a yearly basis. The major catastrophes that we're facing are not necessarily going to be solved through the electoral process. I think that it's, um, it's very telling that in the uh, last election, the number of people who actually voted was as low as it was in the early part of the 19th century, um, when there were many people who weren't allowed to vote within the population of the United States. So I'm hoping that uh, grassroots activism, constant outreach and education, alliance of various different movements will help to swell the numbers of people who will say that they won't any longer cooperate with the systems of governance that have gotten us into these terrible situations in the first place. Thank you so much, Kathy. Well, thank you, Jan, for your interest in all of these questions. And that is Kathy Kelly, Voices for Creative nonviolence and before that it was voices in the wilderness she she was one of those who supported the people of Iraq right through from the first Iraq war and there was there when the bombing started in the second Iraq war and has been campaigning against US foreign policy and war ever since and has just spent three months in jail for her work where else do you put peace activists but in jail? It's um, five minutes to five. And as I'm sure you all know, that the Radiothon's coming up in about four weeks. Lots of money to raise. And I'm quite sure that 
all our wonderful listeners appreciate this radio station, which next year turns 40. Yeah, a great time, and it's a great time every year to make sure that we stay on air for that extra year. So that'll be coming up. You can ring anytime you like, 94198377, and pledge money, or you can wait a little while longer, but make sure that you've got that money there sitting there waiting to send off to 3CR. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. On the program last week, researcher and journalist Nick McClellan spoke about unexploded ordinances in the Pacific. I then asked him how he survived Anzac Day. Well, actually, Anzac Day is my birthday, so I always enjoy having a public holiday on my birthday. And uh, Well, you didn't get one this year, did you? Well, yes, the shops were closed, and... Uh, to add to insult to injury, I'm also an Essendon supporter. So the uh, Essendon-Collingwood game on my birthday, on Anzac Day, is always a highlight of the day for me. Beyond that, I, like most people, was sick of the hoopla around the Anzac centenary and more to the point, sick of the silences, um, the lack of history that's being promoted through the mass media about Anzac Day. It's striking. You know, there was a lot of concern when Woolworths ran a campaign saying fresh in our memory with a picture of a, a digger, uh, a very handsome digger, uh, in the background. You know, it was felt that that was one step too far in commercialising what's supposed to be a commemoration rather than a celebration. You know, people don't go around saying happy Anzac Day. It's supposed to be a sombre occasion. And I think the backlash against Woolworths is, is, is striking, but it sort of reinforced for me the mythology, you know, that these were our boys and we shouldn't dishonour our boys and so on. And it it downplays the history of what it was, the slaughter that was there. It also, once again, lacks a sense of history about the fact that Gallipoli was a very multinational exercise. I wrote an article which people could look up on uh, Inside Story website uh, that uh, covers a lot of domestic policy issues. And it was called Gallipoli and Forgetting, and it was about the French troops at um, Gallipoli. People are often surprised. More French soldiers died at Gallipoli than Australian. Um, And many of those soldiers were Senegalese, West Africans. The article looks at the fact that there were thousands of Indians in the British forces, thousands of Senegalese in the French forces, Maori and Indigenous Australians in the Anzac forces. You know, we have these images of our bush-hardened Aussie, you know, pioneers, and yet um, the Maori contingent was a large part of the New Zealand forces and, indeed, the forces that got um, uh, to Chanak Bear uh, during the August offensive were Maori. I heard a New Zealand reporter give a little radio thing talking about our gallant boys who fought their way up to the, the top and uh, and not once did he mention that they were Maori until he said, oh, and then they did the, the haka, 
Kamate, Kamate, as they dived into the Turkish trenches. And I suspect in 1915 that Anglo-Celtic New Zealanders weren't doing the haka as they died in the trenches. So there are these silences about Anzac Day and, frankly, you know, what the hell Churchill was doing, trying to support the Tsarist Russia, you know, one of the most authoritarian autocracies that was overthrown by its own people two years later uh, because of how rotten Tsar Nicholas was and what we were doing supporting, you know, the Tsarist war against the Ottoman Empire. All that history is, is missing in the commemoration. There is a healthy, however, I think, counter-arguments and there were some wonderful initiatives taken to try and bring these stories to light. I think one of the most moving stuff I saw was by uh, some people at Monash University who've done a, a video series on, online uh, called 100 Stories. Even people who are sick of Gallipoli should go and have a look at them. There's literally 100 little YouTube videos. They're only about two minutes long. They're silent, no music, no voices, just captions about the stories of people who went to war and came back, Indigenous Australians who went families that saw three sons slaughtered on the battlefields of Europe, people who went and fought and then came back with terrible, terrible injuries that they lived through. They're very silent, they're very simple, but they're very powerful. And they talked about exactly what we've talked about today, that the war doesn't end on Armistice Day. The war continues for many people for years afterwards. I'm encouraged that in spite of all the official government-sponsored hoopla, there were also counter-stories, counter-narratives put forward that give us hope that we can do something about the next one. And the silencing of the SBS sports journalist? Yeah, well, you know, free speech for some and not for others. You know, our boys died and fought in Gallipoli for freedom and, and so on, except if you want to speak out against uh, the dominant narrative that this was uh, uh, for our freedom, the birth of the nation, the baptism of blood and sacrifice and all the sort of nonsense that's promoted by people like uh, Brendan Nelson at the Australian War Memorial, whatever you might think of what the bloke wrote, it's symbolic that someone had to be slapped down publicly for daring to, to put up a counter-narrative. And there were people who spoke. I attended a, a function on the 24th um, at um, BMW Edge Federation Square. Hundreds of people were there uh, with speakers, um, a woman talking about the Armenian genocide, Adam Bant, the local uh, MP for Melbourne, young people singing songs for peace, Peter Cundall, famous ABC uh, commentator who's um, been through three uh, military deployments and is a, a fierce, passionate fighter against war and the, the stupidity and the horror of it and so on. So there were other voices. They just didn't filter through the front page of the Herald Sun or the Age. And I think it's important that we continue to build those sort of counter-narratives to uh, show that the hoopla is not uh, necessary. So that was my Anzac Day and I got a very nice uh, bag for my bicycle. Glad you had a nice birthday. That's Nick McClellan, author, researcher, journalist, very clever man. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. There are concerns that fundamental changes are likely in Cuba in the not-too-distant future. So today we look at the past, the present and that possible future with Dr Ralph Newmark, the Director of the Latin American Institute at La Trobe University. I asked Ralph first 
what is known about the indigenous peoples of Cuba. Yes, well, it's really interesting. I think one of the great sad stories, really, of amongst many of history is that the indigenous people of the Caribbean islands were totally wiped out within a 100 years of the Spanish conquest. One has to be careful about this use of the word genocide. On the level of genocide in terms of people living as indigenous people in the islands of the Caribbean, there was complete and utter genocide. Of course, we know that in terms of genetics and uh, people who uh, relate to those community civilizations, if you like, there is, of course, a lot of the indigenous genes throughout the Caribbean. And I think the problem with genocide is once you label that, and I think Tasmania is a good example, that you sort of deny land rights to people who claim that that uh, direct uh, or that linkage. And um, so the point is, in terms of Unlike the mainland of Latin America, so, you know, in in the areas of, say, Aztec Mexico and Inca Peru, where you had sophisticated labour relationships between the hierarchy of the Incas right down to the people who would um, do most of them, the masses, if you want to call them that, and same in Peru, the relationships were always ones of work you had to sort of contribute and work relations, labour relationships. In the islands of the Caribbean and, and Brazil, you had hunter-gatherer communities that in sense that when they were hungry, they hunted, you know, that sort of almost idyllic, you know, Garden of Eden stuff in many ways. When the Spanish came and imposed work and labour relations in them, well, forced labour basically, they simply couldn't cope. I mean, there's all sorts of forms of resistance, suicide, infanticide, melancholy, whatever you want to call that, depression these days. Basically, these people, with such a horrific change to their lives that the Spanish imposed in terms of mining and forced labour, basically disappeared. So it's a sad, sad, these really sad story. Did it happen fairly quickly? Well, it did rapidly in the course of really the 16th century. From So when the Spanish really started to settle the islands, particularly Cuba, Hispaniola, which is Dominican Republic, uh, Haiti, from about 1500, by 1600, so that's 100 years, virtually all these communities were, were gone. And that's when they used to talk about the Aborigines in Australia, they used mm. to say there was no resistance to the, the onslaught. Was there resistance? Absolutely. I think, again, this issue of resistance, and with slavery later on, there was continual. They're great heroes that stood up, people who, of course, there was resistance. But, of course, the Spanish used, well, firstly, they had guns. So, you know, they had a technological advantage. Also, there's some terrible paintings, drawings for the period of using dogs, trained attack dogs. Basically, they had no chance. So, yes, indeed, there was resistance. Of course, once that population had been wiped out, the Spanish weren't going to do any work because <laughs> they... Uh, Spaniard would never get their hands dirty, so of course they needed a labour supply and we know they came, uh, that's slavery starting. Was it a really rich land that they found in terms of agricultural land or minerals? Not really. We're talking here about Cuba and the main islands, right? Not the mainland. I mean, the real riches that the Spanish wanted, which was obviously silver, gold, etc. This was all on the mainland. 
Cuba really was a bit of a um, – you see, it's really interesting that the, the – discover- I don't like the word discovery, but the first European to arrive there was Columbus, 1492. He actually went to Cuba, arrived in Cuba. Now, the problem was, of course, Columbus thought to the day he died that he was off the coast of Asia. <laughs> you know the famous story. And, of course, his letters back to the king and queen of Spain, Ferdinand Isabel, were glowing. I mean, the, what have we got to remember about Columbus? He was, he was a salesman. I mean, he was basically looking like, like academics for grants. You know? <laughs> so he'd write back saying, you know, this land is all oh, a magnificent potential. There's gold, which there wasn't. I mean, there was you know, alluvial gold. There was no real gold. But he wrote back saying, you know, this is, I've discovered, you know, these islands off the coast of Asia and it's uh, you know, the most wealthy, rich part of the world. And of course, that, they sponsored three other trips for him. So you know, if he was selling used cars, he'd be a genius. He'd do, <laughs> do really well. But the point being that Cuba wasn't, and as it turned out, wasn't a main economic centre for the Spanish for quite a while. It did become that, but it wasn't. What it ended up really being was a staging post for the colonisation of Mexico, and that's where the big bickies, the the gold, etc., came when Cortes goes to the mainland. And, of course, once Peru's discovered in the 1530-odd with Pizarro. Then, you know, Cuba becomes important that cattle are brought in. It's like a sort of an R&R place for Spanish um, soldiers and uh, uh, conquistadores coming through, a staging post, etc. Of course, it does blossom later into being economically itself through tobacco and then ultimately, by the 19th century, the big S sugar Sugar, sugar. How long was it before they actually settled the island? Oh, very quick, very early on. I mean, it, it was it, there were sort of Spanish settlements there, quite mm. quite on. As I was saying, it was used as, as opposed to a mm. staging post. Well, I think it really gets going more as a major place for colonisation, even though that was staging post is also colonisation. I mean, it was going on. And, you know, there were industries, as I said, there was you know, alluvial mining to some extent, but, but cattle, leather, tobacco, which was starting to come through. I mean, really in the 16th century, there were Spaniards moving in there. When I say that, I mean, not families uh, we were looking at. And, of course, the whole issue of the conquest is based on rape and, you know, creation, the mestizo nations, mulatto people are all the result of um, Spaniards, well, basically um, taking local women. So in many ways, you're getting that population growing as the indigenous population collapses. But of course, the new influx really, and that started not in great numbers, but certainly in the 1500s, you're getting the Africans coming in to replace the labour of the indigenous who really just melted away, sadly. And where were they getting the African slaves from? Which countries? The African slave trade, sadly, was invented by the Portuguese who started doing it initially and really after 1500 in a serious way to supply slaves to Brazil. Because Brazil was the same in the sense that it had a nomadic uh, hunter-gatherer indigenous people and they... They weren't completely wiped out, but certainly retreated to the interior and the sugar took over in Brazil from you know the 1500s. They were coming from initially a place called Elmina, which we would now call modern-day Ghana. What the Portuguese set up were these sort of enclaves around the west coast of Africa in which they would send slaves to Brazil. Once the Spanish get involved, they're importing as well. So, I mean, all countries, ultimately the people who made the slave trade an absolute 
art form were indeed the British. And I think many people would say that the cities of Liverpool, Bristol, some of those coastal cities of England were built on the blood of slavery until the 19th century when they turn against it for economic reasons. Were there times in those first couple of centuries that Spain was challenged for control of Cuba? Yes, absolutely. I mean, what starts off, and I think this is really interesting, is that in the late 15th century, obviously when Columbus bumps into, uh, I don't say discovered, uh, bumps into the Americas, prior to that, the Portuguese had in fact been pushing out into the Atlantic, trying to go find a sea route to indeed Asia. I mean, the whole thing was the linkage between Europe and Asia. The Portuguese had been the first by moving out from their uh, Atlantic coast, trying to go down the coast of Africa, moving ultimately, hopefully, to what we called the Spice Islands, which were, were the sources of things like nutmeg, black pepper, uh, cinnamon, cloves. These were worth a fortune in Europe. They were known in Europe because they'd come overland through the Middle East, etc., through Istanbul, Constantinople, Istanbul, after the mid 1400s, and basically were worth a fortune. The idea was that Europe was trying to cut out the middlemen and get a direct sea route to the Spice Islands. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that the Portuguese started the 500-year adventure of global capitalism, globalisation. I mean, when you say globalisation, to me it starts really then. And the Spanish, of course, uh, after this guy Columbus, who of course was Genoese Italian, sold his plan to Spain. He said, I've got a, I've got a plan for you. And he said, oh, Portuguese are going east, we're going to go west. And indeed, the problem became in the late 1400s that Spain was claiming territory to the west and Portugal to the east. So what they did is they went to the boss, both Catholic empires, and the boss happened to be Alexander the Sixth, the Borgia Pope. I think it's no secret that they're allegedly the most corrupt pope in history, if that's fair, is fair to say. And he divides the world in two in 1494, the Treaty of Tordesillas. Half the hemisphere for Spain, half for Portugal. No uh, referenda. Didn't ask anyone, just said it. The point, basically, when looking here at 1494, however, there's a little problem. By the 1500s, the Reformation occurs. Little monk in Germany, Martin Luther, <laughs> remember him? He's pretty upset with the Vatican and says, well, I want, I'm going to have a direct relationship with God. I don't need you middlemen <laughs> down in, in the Vatican. And basically, Henry VIII hops on the bandwagon He's got issues. He needs money for wars against France. So all the Catholic monasteries he confiscates. He creates his own church with the uh, Church of England. And the head of the Church of England, a surprise of all, is himself. <laughs> anyway, uh, I mean, the idea is suddenly you have Protestant powers. The Dutch follow on later. And getting back to the Caribbean, Spain is then challenged by these new powers, Protestant, and even France, which is not Protestant, but certainly it's an area of contestation. Now, the British take Havana in 1760s, and this really is a challenge, but the Spanish managed to hang on to it after um, fighting. But some of the islands of the Caribbean changed flags seven times, you know, within two, three hundred years. They, you know, they're Dutch one day, then they get the British, and then they, the Spanish never really retake many of them. But they held on to Cuba 
and uh, Hispaniola, the, what's now called the Dominican Republic. But they didn't stay in Cuba, the There's, British. No, no, they were forced out. But what they did do, they actually opened the ports of Cuba. See, the point is that the Spanish Empire operated as a mercantilist, closed. You could only trade through Spain. So the Cuban planters did, in fact, have this sort of, you know, 20, 30 years of actually being able to sell to a much wider market. And they rather liked it, actually. However, Cuba remained a Spanish colony right through right through to 1898, which is unbelievable because every other Latin American country, as you would know, broke away from Spain in 1810-20. Well, the next question has to be, were they complacent or what, the the locals? The reason they... Now, this is really interesting. From around the late 1700s, Spain is declining as a power, and what they... I suppose you could argue stupidly do, is they turn the screws on their colonies, asking for more taxation, more control. These are called the Bourbon reforms, as they're known in the uh, late 18th century. Now, by this stage, all the elites in Latin America on the mainland, and everywhere actually, were born in Latin America, Criollis, Criollos we call them. These were people whose loyalty to Spain really after three, four, five generations was not that direct link. So they started to resent, you know, that here are the poniciolares, as they call them, people from Spain, taxing them, controlling them. They say, well, actually, maybe I'm a Venezuelan. I'm not a Spanish. And Bolivar, the great liberator, leads this revolutions right throughout Spanish America to stand up and say, well, you know, we want to be independent countries. Now, Cuba is the only country in Latin America or region that does not go for independence. Now, why? That's the big question. Puerto Rico aside, that's another one, but Cuba's the main one, because it's the only Spanish colony with a majority black population. Remember I said that in the mainland there were workforces, a labour force of indigenous people, and the the elites controlled them. So basically what you got here was that in France, and it's a very interesting story here, because, of course, in 1790s in France you get, indeed, the French Revolution. You know, uh, liberty, equality, fraternity, all this stuff, what you're getting in, in France. Now, Haiti, which was called the French province uh, uh, colony of Saint-Domingue, was the richest colony France had, sugar colony. The black slaves, unbelievably, first time and I think the only time ever in history, rose up against the French colonial authorities and took state power. The independent nation of Haiti, formed in 1802, even fought off Napoleonic's forces. Napoleon sent his uh, brother-in-law with uh, an army, and the slave black population of Haiti beat them off. Now, you've got to realise, next door, right next door in Cuba, the white elites, who were a minority, as they were in Haiti, were, uh, you know, to put it mildly, utterly freaked out <laughs> and they stuck with Spain because in a sense they were the only region there were outnumbered by people of African descent. So right through the 19th century you get Cuba unlike the rest of Latin America still a Spanish colony until the end of the 19th century. The trouble is through that 19th century Cuban sugar interests are starting to move, be penetrated by the giant of the north, the United States. 
United States being a country that gets its act together very much in the US civil war. Because as you as you could see, the problem of the United States was is that it started as the 19th century moves on. I mean, becomes independent of the late 18th century. You get two United States. You get an industrialising North and the old cotton-picking slave plantation South. Now, the point is that's two political economies. Ultimately, if they're going to be one country, you had to get rid of slavery because an industrial country needs people, consumers. And this happened in Britain too. The idea was basically you can't have slavery in an industrialising single nation because simply slaves, I love saying this to the class, slaves don't go shopping. (laughs) So that's what the war was about, I would argue. It was painted as a humanitarian war against slavery in the South. But I think very much it was about either you have two US countries one a slave economy and one an industrial north. We have one country and everyone is ultimately a consumer. Was the US knocking on the door in the 19th century? To Cuba, absolutely. Well, what was happening as this sort of political trans... This transformation occurs in Cuba in the 19th century as Spain fades as a power, lost all its colonies, didn't you know, on the mainland. U.S. economic penetration starts coming in and starting to gain control of the sugar industry and basically becomes the complete trading partner of Cuba. But Spain is the political taxing power. So you've got a real anomaly by the 1890s of Cuba, a political colony of Spain and an economic dependency of the United States. And that's sort of unsustainable. Then you get the rise of the great Jose Marti, who says, listen, Cuba for Cubans. And who was he? Extraordinary fellow, a poet, a revolutionary, uh, I think overall Cuba's great nationalist hero. Sadly, he was killed very shortly after the start of the independence revolution in 1895. However, the terrible story is, if I can go on with this, is that Spain won't give up. I mean, it's its last major colony. It was still getting um, taxation revenue from uh, from Cuba. Spain sends in its best. It really throws everything at it, including a brutal general who in Cuban history is known as the Butcher. It's like the sort of Hitler of Cuba, uh, General Whaler. And he basically invents, well, probably learning it from the Boer War of a similar time, the idea of concentration camps. And what they do is, because of the Cuban revolutionaries are being obviously helped by people in the countryside, they create these strategic hamlets, done again in Vietnam, yeah, 100 years later, or years later. The idea is that you concentrate the locals in camps so they can't help the rebels. I've seen pictures from the Cuban-Spanish-American War that, you know, look like pictures out of Auschwitz, you know, in terms of the local people starving to death. Basically, the rebels really push it to the point where Spain is on the verge of defeat in 1898, literally. But the US send naval, particularly a famous ship called the USS Maine, just to keep an eye on matters, and it sinks, and in go the US. They clean up the Spaniards in about three months particularly a major role played by none other than Teddy Roosevelt with his Rough Riders. And Spain gives up, but there are US troops in Cuba. And basically what happens to Cuba? US grants independence with 
a constitution that you would weep over. Should we be suspicious about the main incident? You know, this is, of course, you know, conspiracy theories. I mean, of course, the US press goes nuts, led by Randolph Hearst, you know, the yellow Paris, that, oh, Spaniards are blowing up our ship, we've got to get in there, we've got to save the Cubans, save our interests. There's been a good bit of research. I, mean, I don't know if the Spaniards were that crazy. I mean, why blow up a US ship when you've got this monstrous country next door? <laughs> They're going to respond. I think the latest research is that, in fact, it may well have been just an accident, the build-up of gas in the end downstairs. Whatever it was, it was a godsend to the US. Maybe they did it themselves. I don't know. <laughs> a bit like the 9-11. <laughs> Well, let's see what happened once the, the US take even more control of Cuba. Yeah. Well, basically the issue becomes, uh, you know, the US perspective is we saved you. We saved you from these horrible colonial power. And we will grant you independence if, in 1901-02, if you insert in your constitution what's become the notorious, infamous Platt Amendment. Now, I always like to ask the students... You know, another country becomes independent at the same time, 1901-02, and that country is <laughs> Australia. You know, how would you feel as an Australian if Britain inserted this amendment in our constitution? And then, you know, you look, you look through the clauses. Clause 7 is very interesting. It has a permanent naval station in Cuba, which we now know as Guantanamo. Still there. Still there. But the other clauses are even bizarre. They basically say that Cuba's economic, political sovereignty is at the behest of the United States. They can't f sign treaties. They can't get international loans without U.S. approval. And that the U.S. Has, is entitled to re -take the, you know, intervene in the island physically and that any actions by U.S. military personnel in Cuba are immune from Cuban criminal law. How about that? God, there must have been a lot of resentment, surely. There was. There was a split between, obviously, the Cuban nationalists and those Cuban elites who actually wanted to become part of the states because they saw an advantage in it. But I don't think the US wanted Cuba as part of the United States on the grounds that they didn't want a Spanish-speaking state and a majority, well, black population. Well, they already had that, but certainly a Spanish-speaking state. It was better to control it indirectly. They had no choice, by the way, the Cuban elite, because this, it was occupied by U.S. soldiers. Now, I just part of the issue here is, and I often, I'm painting this as the birth of the Cuban nation is where people like Fidel and all this later, much he wasn't alive around then, he was born in 28, but the, this is the idea of Cuba's utter and total dependency and where the revolution ultimately comes from. There was an attempt at a revolution in 1933, a nationalist revolution in 1933 under a president called Grau Samartin. It lasts 100 days. It's overthrown not by US invasion like they always did, but it was overthrown by cultivating a man in the army who was a sergeant called Fulencio Batista, Sergeant Batista, who overthrew the officer corps and he woke up next morning and he was Colonel Batista. <laughs> and he then basically calls the shots till 1959. What was the situation of the black population after the ending of slavery? 
till that Slavery time. was not ended in Cuba until 1886, only two years before Brazil, 1888, which was the most disgraceful last country ever to abolish formal African slavery. Basically, some labour was taken over by Chinese coolies, and in fact there's quite a Chinese uh, element uh, coming in in that 19th century. What happens is it happens to all former slave populations. They enter the community at the bottom of the barrel and they stay there. And I mean, basically, there was no compensation, of course. They basically moved into the lowest stratas of society. Same in Brazil. And uh, the issue of racism is so embedded, they can't get out of the, the bottom level. And it isn't until 59, really, the Fidel's revolution tries hard. And uh, racism is not something you turn off like that. I mean, you can make it illegal. You can give Afro-Cubans, you know, entry to uni, all those sorts of things. But... Racism is a very insidious, outrageous thing. Looking at that 50 years up to the, the early 50s, what was mm. the economic situation for the, for the masses of Cuba, mm. particularly the black people? There was an Afro-Cuban uprising in 1912. Now, the elites, how did they deal with it? Well, the US came in and did it for them. After the independence of Cuba, the US came back five times. The only invasion that's failed was the Bay of Pigs. <laughs> Otherwise, they came back and settled things down when they were, like, you know, 33. They didn't have to invade. They got Batista to do it. But basically, every time there was a problem, they didn't, they'd come back. The black people and the poor. Now, the problem is, and the, the real problem for Cuba is, and it hasn't changed, actually, is the big S, sugar, sugar, and the third one, sugar. If you inherit an economy that's a monoculture of sugar, which is a commodity that goes up and down like a yo-yo, that provides really proper employment for only a section of the year when they're harvesting. The rest of people are destitute, basically. This is a colonial legacy that the revolution, the 59 revolution, has struggled with ever since. And it's not something you get away from very quickly. You've been listening to Dr. Ralph Newmark from the Latin American Studies Institute at La Trobe University talking about Cuba up until the revolution in 59. On the program next week, we'll be hearing what happened after. Same with Ralph Newmark. So it's something to look forward to. But that's all for me for today. Jonathan is here for Food Fight. I think he's going to play with his Pokemon cards while he's here. I didn't say that. I'll be back next Tuesday at four. Bye for now.